Welcome to the Real Estate Investors Weekender Podcast. This podcast is brought to you by the award-winning editorial staff at nreionline.com. Let's jump right into this week's top news, features, and blog posts. Welcome to the NREI Weekender with your host, David Bodemer. Let's dive into this week's top news. David, how are you? I'm doing all right. How are you this week? Oh, I'm doing fantastic. I know we got a lot of stories to, well, not a lot, but we got what, four stories to cover today? Yeah, we're going to re- recap uh, four pieces from our site from the week. Nice, nice. And, and uh, what are we going to start with today? So the first piece that we want to talk about is one of our staff writers, Sebastian Abondo, did a pretty big write-up based on his own reporting combined with some of the other reporting in the financial press about what about what's going on with WeWork since they have a planned IPO. It's it's a company that our our industry is paying a lot of attention to since have accumulated a ton of buildings or they've signed a lot of big leases that they are then subleasing. You know, it's it's they're they're, they're kind of the co-working giant. Now, but they've also been like hemorrhaging cash like crazy. So mm-hmm. they've raised a tremendous amount of capital and they're aiming to raise even more capital through their IPO. They're also shedding a lot of this, you know, they're, they're, they're not posting, they're posting operating losses based p- partly in because they, they, they keep acquiring stuff or they keep signing leases at a much faster pace than they, than they can generate any revenue. So with that being the context, there's just a lot of questions about, um, you know, they've got a, a fairly high estimated valuation, currently about $47 billion, uh, makes it the country's potentially the most valuable startup. You know, we've obviously had a whole, we're in an era of, of these, of startups that are, that have, have sort of questionable financials, but then seem to raise a lot of money. And I think that's that's the, that's the situation that is facing us with WeWork. So, I you know so we so we spoke to both the people that we spoke to, and then some of the other reporting pointed to that like this company has only existed during what's been a bull market for mm-hmm. you know, both both for the the broad economy as well as for commercial real estate in general. So there's always been a lot of questions about what happens when we, if we hit a recession or rents start falling? What is going to happen to them? There's also just some questions about like whether some of the businesses they've bought actually make any sense given what their core business is. So, uh, you know, I think there's, there's a, a potentially a lot, a lot of both questions. There's a lot of questions that I think um, that we were trying to, that, that, that we don't necessarily have any answers to at this mm-hmm. point, or at least not answers to all of them, but that's, that's what's, that's what the report was trying to shine a light on both um, from the broader financial press for as well as the commercial real estate in particular. Okay, so let's step back for a moment. We work sure. as like a shared workspace company. Is that what it is? Yeah, I mean that that's the that's how it started. That that's it's that that's supposed to be its core business model. You know, they're they're buying buildings in markets across the country or in some cases leasing chunks of space out of office buildings. Mm-hmm. They renovate the space, they Loaded up with a bunch of nice amenities like, you know, cafe, they'll, they'll have cafes, they'll have great internet, they'll have lots of conference rooms, they'll have a lot of variety of, of kinds of working space, open office, variety of conference rooms, huddle rooms, all that sort of stuff. You know, but then they also like toss in like, you know, ping pong tables and, you know, there's <laughs> a um, roller coaster here and there. Yeah. You know, Got like, it. Things to make it kind of like fun too. Mm-hmm. Um, and the idea is that it's a place for 
to for businesses that don't that may be up and coming or just somebody that needs like three desks or somebody that's mm-hmm. you know maybe telecommuting and you just want to work in an office for a day and that's the core of their business model got it so yeah it sounds to me like it's it's supposed to be pretty flexible and and all that stuff and obviously all the amenities are are nice uh, are a nice touch i remember living in seattle when microsoft was really getting big and i did some work out there they had oh my goodness breakfast i don't know 3 days a week at least and it, they were just amazing this these spreads that they just provided for all the employees and and i mean it was you know during the tech boom where everybody's trying to get other people and that was a big that was a big push right all the amenities all the all the extras that you could you could add to these things so it sounds like that's what they're trying to do is set themselves apart from some of these other companies that have just been workspaces right yeah and i think it, it's it's kind of taking that culture that feel of the the startup culture that a, that companies like google and microsoft had mm-hmm. and just creating it as a you know a blank canvas space where you know, this is where you can just come and work, you know, yeah. no matter who you work for, or if you are just like a, a small company with like five people and you can't, you, you don't really need to rent your own full office space yet, you know, this, a WeWork is sort of set up for you. So that's, and, and you know, th- it's certainly not um, a new business. I mean, that's that kind of idea of an incubator space or flexible work office space has been around for a long time. But, you know, WeWork has kind of caught fire in part because of like, I mean, I think it's just like the, the brand and the, mm-hmm. the, the image they've created and the pace of growth that they've had in terms of raising so much capital, setting up WeWorks and, you know, off, I mean, you drive through every city now and, and, and was, I'm always surprised to see how many, you know, you know, it's not that you don't have to go very long before you see a WeWork sign somewhere now because uh, they just have such this, They've already built such a ubiquitous president presence in a in a fairly short amount of time, you know. So I think that's some of the buzz around it, and why mm-hmm. there is now like, okay, this you, this company, you know, wants to go public. Shareholders may want to get in on it, but I mean, there's always this. To me, it's like this issue that we had, the same issue that we had in the, in the last tech bubble, which is okay, these companies maybe have a a good core idea or a good they can do a certain volume of business because they're providing some kind of service, but they're not turning a profit. So at some point, isn't that an issue? Yeah, you, you would think so, right? <laughs> you said earlier that that they're buying companies that don't exactly seem to fit their model. What kind of companies are we talking about? Yeah, so I think this is re, this is a related to specifically the the owner of the company, Adam Newman. He's the he's still the largest shareholder. He's the guy driving it. But he's also made a bunch of investments that seem to m- tied more to things that he's personally interested in, rather than things that seem like organically part of what we work, you know, would be branching into. So okay. things like an elementary school, uh, a company that makes wave pools, and a natural foods business started by a pro surfer. So these are some of the other things that we work has now invested in, which it's hard to see exactly where the synergies might be for a flexible work, workspace and these other things. And so I think that's raised a couple of, um, that's raised some flags for people. Yeah. It seems a little odd to be uh, purchasing an elementary school I mean, yeah. <laughs> or uh, you're going to set up shop there. You've got people selling, you know, tiddlywinks and toys and stuff to kids. And I, I don't know. It's just... Yeah. I'm not sure I, I, with, with the, 
I mean, maybe there is something I'm not seeing, but yeah, I'm, I'm not seeing. Well, if MC Hammer can buy a gold toilet, I suppose this guy can buy an elementary school. I, I don't know. Right. I'm not in charge of that. Yeah. yeah. So, <laughs> uh, what else do we need to talk about with WeWork? Anything? I mean, so just, I mean, a couple other, I think just some of the key numbers that were in the, in the story is one that, you know, they lost $2 billion in 2018. And wow. uh, that, that was their net loss, mostly due to, you know, just spending on this expand on these expansion efforts much more quickly than, then they're generating revenue. And in the first quarter of this year, they lost another $264 million. So, Jeez. you know, that, that's like the, the kind of the, some of the, the fundamental fundamentals underscoring what they're doing. On the flip side, what they are saying is that what might protect them from both a downturn and from any issues that, that, that emerge in the real estate market is that they have underwrite their buildings or their leases to, to break even, even if they're only 60% occupied or lower, mm. which um, that's a pretty low number. Generally their occupancy, they say right now is between 80 and 85%. So, you know, if that, if those, if that math is correct and like, you know, that is their break even point, that mean that gives them some cushion um, to, to deal with any softness in the office market yeah. or any softness that they may have. But I think there's still just this fundamental question of, for me, <laughs> that at some point you have to turn a profit in order to deliver return to the shareholders. Yeah, I mean, two hundred and some odd million dollars first quarter. I get I get mad when I misplace my wallet. I yeah. mean, they lost two hundred and sixty some odd million dollars. It's wow. All right, what's our second story, David? Let's move on. So changing gears, um, uh, another particular, another interesting piece we had this week looks at something that. The largest uh, warehouse and industrial owner in the world, Prologis, has been doing uh, for the past couple of years mm -hmm. in terms of their lease structure. This was a piece written by one of our freelancers, uh, Beth Matson-Teague. Basically, what Prologis has been doing for the past two years is they debuted something called what they're calling a clear lease which really is just meant to be a more simplified version of a lease than the traditional leases that their tenants have been, have been signing. So it's simplified um, to include fixed costs related to operating expenses, capital expenses, HVAC costs, and all of those things over the term of the, term of the lease. I think part of, part of the idea is to create a, simple, a simpler lease structure for their tenants to create a more even cost structure for the tenants, to create a more even revenue structure mm -hmm. for themselves. So I think those are some of some of what is driving it. And now I think since they introduced this in the fall of 2017, they say that it's now accounts for 25% of their portfolio in North America are now have now been converted to these uh, new leases. I think that's it's one of these things where big company trendsetter in the market doing something, trying something out for a couple of years. They've got decent penetration now in their portfolio with it. So, you know, what does that mean? One of the things that it means is, you know, it seems like they're going to continue to pursue it, try to continue to transfer other tenants over to it. And the other question always is like, when somebody does this, you know, are their competitors going to follow suit so far, I don't think we're, we've seen that from any of the other industrial companies, but I think that's something to, that we will have to continue to keep an eye on. I think from the 
tenant perspective, the leases are a little shorter. So I guess they, they come up for renewal more often, which can be a good or bad thing. But I don't think, it, but essentially is like, just a, I think a neutral selling point at this point. Mm-hmm. Um, and then I think another piece of this though, that raises some interesting questions is like, you know, if you now have different leases than what the, than the market standard, what happens if you want to sell your property? <laughs> if you want to sell some of these assets to an owner that doesn't, doesn't use these leases or doesn't want to use these kind of leases, that creates some issues potentially in an exit strategy when you want to divest some of your assets. Got it. So some of the things that you had talked about earlier, um, before the podcast even, uh, you had mentioned that this kind of sets the bar. So instead of operating costs fluctuating, they would mm-hmm. set something more solid, right? So if if operating costs ebb and flow for a tenant, that can be difficult to to budget, right? You were talking about it's going to be better budgeting for the company itself, and then you would think it would be better budgeting for um, the the tenant as well. But what happens if you know they're charging quite a bit more, and the the person or the the tenant's not using that? You brought up HVAC system or whatever it is. What if they're not using nearly as much as what the fixed cost was set at originally? Is there going to be some sort of uh, rebate? Uh, I don't know, refund or any of those costs? That's a good question. I don't think I've, I don't see any reference to that. I think um, that ultimately what they're trying to do is, you know, based on the fact that they own so many properties mm-hmm. and they have a large sample size, they know these markets that they're trying to get the costs. Correct. Got so that, that that you know that that they want to they want to charge what they what they know you know if they're a property in New Jersey is going to have a certain level of cost based on the climate compared to one in Chicago. I think they're trying to you know get, get those costs appropriate based on the sampling and based on their experience in operating. I don't think they are. Hopefully, I mean, I don't think that that the idea here is to. Set a cost, and then at a potentially at a higher rate than like what the usage might be. Mm-hmm. I don't think they're trying to rip anybody off. I, I'm just curious of what happens if, right? I mean, they're yeah. they're kind of counting for a record snowfall or or a lot of rain or or whatever it is that's going to impact that specific business at that specific location. Um, you know, I, I could see it, it would be interesting. I don't, you know, I don't have to do all the math on it to figure out these numbers. They do, but that it'll be interesting to see what happens with that. Yes, definitely. All right, David, what else do we need to know about the story? So I think the one last point that was made uh, in the piece was that this may be a better fit for like larger clients, like a, a, a kind of a tenant that may be signing leases in a number of markets. They may just want may also be helpful for the standardization. Um, if it's just like a smaller or a one-off tenant, it may not be as, um, as good a fit. Hmm. All right. Yeah, I mean, that makes a lot of sense. The next piece that we had this week that was um, interesting is a look at what some retailers, uh, apparel retailers are doing to help um, boost their sagging sales numbers. So some of them are adopting a very interesting strategy in the face of falling sales. So I think the the, the context for this is that apparel retail earnings were down 24% in the first quarter of 2019. Mm. Um, and earnings have now haven't sunk this low since the Great Recession. So it was, it was a particularly bad quarter. We also see a lot of apparel retailers are shutting stores. 
it, it's the the reason this is how that that's happening is the same thing that's happening to most other kinds of retailers, which is that the brick and mortar retailers are in, facing increased competition from online online retailers, mm-hmm. and this is now and it's just having a more more visceral impact on sales numbers. So a couple of interesting strategies that some retailers are adopting is basically like letting shoppers try out the apparel before committing to buying it. What? So, <laughs> I'm sorry. <laughs> you, like you're not talking about just trying it on. You're not talk- just trying it on. So like Lululemon in at, at their flagship store, I think in Chicago, um, is allowing customers to take a workout class in the gear that they're considering buying before before they commit to it. So, what? You know, they basically can just get an outfit, take out, take a yoga class, decide if they want that they still want it. Okay, so they're going to loan somebody yoga pants yeah, or yoga clothes to go get all hot and sweaty in the clothes and then bring them back for somebody else to buy. Yeah, I think I think they. <laughs> I got a problem with this. I got a real problem. I got boundary issues I, I, with this. I'm I just think saying the right class now. is in the store, so I think it's like you, you. I don't think you're necessarily taking it home. I think it's like you have to try it out in the store, take a class there. That's my understanding, brother. I can sweat in a store or at my house. The same. The same. I mean, yeah. I'm still sweating in that outfit, and then I'm just gonna put it back on the rack. <laughs> I mean, they may they may even launder it, but doggone it. That, yeah. Doesn't that seem a little odd to you? It seems a little odd. I think it's it's spe- you know speaking to how much that they're try that they feel the need to do something to help drive their sales, and I think they're also responding to a general try before you buy culture that's emerging. Um, like you know there are groups. There's Warby Parker. You know allows you to you know, the online glasses retailer where you order five pairs. And you're, they send you five pairs, you try or five frames, you try them all on, and then you you know you keep the one that you want to keep and send the others back. But basically, you get a chance to try five pairs before you commit to anything. There are also, I think it's also there's because there's competition from things like there are now like you know like services like Rent the Runway, where apps where you can basically rent clothes, rent you know rent clothes that way. Now there are pressures that are now basically shaping the brick and mortar apparel business. Yeah, I, I get that. I, I've rented tuxedos. I, I used to represent tuxedo uh, rentals for a store, but there's a difference between tuxedos and yoga pants. Yeah. <laughs> I'm just saying. It's you know, just, you know, yeah. I mean, we'll, we'll see where it goes, but even, we'll even it goes, on their, they're, they're trying it in their flagship and they say that depending on how this works, they could roll it out to up to 10% of their stores. Yeah, I, I, that would be that would be interesting to see how that ten percent does and and what the market thinks about that. And, and maybe I'm just archaic. Maybe I'm just you know too old to think that far forward. Um, but even from their website, you know, it says they make technical athletic clothes for yoga, running, working out, and most other sweaty pursuits. That's yeah, that's right on the website. <laughs> You're talking about sweaty <laughs> pursuits. Uh, okay. Uh, well, so a different retailer, which maybe is like, will be a little bit. Not seem quite as intense. Okay, yeah. H and M is also doing something uh, where basically a buy now, pay later program uh, for to help persuade customers to try to spend more. So now you can 
basically buy an item at H&M, keep it for up to 30 days before deciding if you want to keep it. And you can then choose to split your payments. You could either just choose to pay at that point or split your payment into four interest-free installments spread over two months. Got it. Okay. You know, the, and I guess Urban Outfitters and Abercrombie and Fitch also have have programs like this now too. Hmm. Yeah, I, I, uh, you said Abercrombie and Fitch does too. Yeah. Don't they sell a lot of underwear? <laughs> I'm just saying. Uh, are there rules to this, David? Because <laughs> I don't want somebody wearing drawers for 30 days and then it going back to this anyway. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> Is there anything else, man? I mean, do I don't want to beat that dead that horse to death, but yeah, okay, that one just creeped me out. You got another story for us? So the the <laughs> our last piece for the week is just an update on, um, well, it's it's you know it's a update on what Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, the two largest uh, agency lenders, are doing, and they've been doing this sort of interesting thing, which is you know since they are managed by the um, FA, FHFA, which send, sets specific lending limits for uh, how much business these two GSEs are supposed to do. You know, they, they, they normally have like a certain cap of how much, how much lending that they do every year. Somewhat, you know, it's, it's regulated, it's, it's set by, set federally, but there's a loophole, which uh, they increasingly have been... Hmm. Um, using to to then extent to do more business, which is that there are certain loans that qualify that don't count towards their lending limits that, that they can you know lend to a property. And specifically, this has to do with doing loans on affordable housing or energy efficient properties. So any loans that they do on properties that qualify, you know, you normally you have to like you know. Qualify your building as affordable housing or energy efficient in some way, then you can get this. Then, if you do that, then since those are you know considered things that we want to encourage, then okay, those don't count towards Freddie and Fannie's caps of thirty-five billion. You know, they're supposed to do about thirty-five billion dollars a year. But in practice, now what's happened is they're getting more, they're pushing more and more uh, borrowers or encouraging more and more borrowers to qualify for these kind of programs so that uh, they can just do a whole, you know, just do additional volume um, in these programs that, that doesn't count against their caps. So mm-hmm. in 2018, Freddie Mac made $77.5 billion in, in loans and Fannie did $64.4 billion. That's basically because more than half of their loans are now being done in these programs that don't count against their caps. I've got my cynic hat on, man. <laughs> yeah. I just, didn't we learn something from this like 10 years ago? Well, There's, I mean, I think the difference is that these are not necessarily subprime. Well, you know? I know, but you're talking, I just, the word loophole, when you say it with these two names, that the bothers me. <laughs> I, I think the issue rather, like rather than, Maybe that they're doing like there's no indication that they are being too aggressive about their underwriting okay. or lending to shady properties or to unqualified borrowers. I think the what the real issue is is that these enterprises are just then come to dominate the market 
uh, or you know become very hard for other t- kinds of lenders to compete against for if they're trying to lend to the same kinds of properties. Gotcha. So I think I think it's a like if anything, it's maybe a competitive issue that you know the the in spirit the, they're they're vitally maybe like going beyond the spirit of what they're supposed to be doing by being very liberal about the kinds of properties that are fitting into their exceptions in order to increase their volume of business. And um, what does that mean for, you know, you know, that then what does that you know, do for the rest of the market? Just Got like, it. you know, JP Morgan or Wells Fargo, whoever else, you know, who, who's trying to lend on multifamily mm-hmm. family properties is, is competing against these agencies who now are just the, the biggest players in the market. Well, you know, maybe competition is good for the consumer, right? Maybe we can end on a positive note. Maybe, maybe that's what we yeah. take away from this, yeah? As long as we're not in a situation, the situations like we were in 10 years ago mm-hmm. where we are doing too much interest only or, you know, too high loan-to-value ratios or underwriting properties with far too aggressive assumptions about rental growth or, uh, or, or asset or assets um, value growth, you know, those are to me are like the big red flags that, yeah. that we would have yeah. to look out for the capital markets. You know, the, the, if it's just an issue that maybe Fannie and Freddie are taking too big a share and they're making it more difficult for other banks, I mean, that's an issue, but it's not like a, it's not the same kind of um, systemic risk mm-hmm. that that we were talking about the last time around when, you know, everything that was, Kind of covered in the in the in the big short was what was came and blew up the single housing market and and similar dynamics were affecting the commercial real estate market. Got it, got it. Okay, uh, this was a great recap. Anything else to close on? That is, uh, that's th- those are the highlights for this week. I mean, we had we had some more some other stories on our site, so just make sure to go to nreionline.com for um, some other other pieces that we posted and. Um, Stay tuned for our podcast next week. Sounds good, David. Thank you so much. All right. And thank you all for listening to the NREI Weekender with your host, David Bodemer. If you have not subscribed to the podcast yet, please click the subscribe now button below. This way, when David comes out with a new podcast, it'll show up directly on your listening device. Again, thanks for listening today for everyone at the NREI Weekender. This is Eric Johnson inviting you back next week for all the news that matters to you. And we'll see you soon. Click the subscribe button below to be notified when new episodes become available. The information covered and posted represents the views and opinions of the guests and does not necessarily represent the views or opinions of NERI Informa. The content has been made available for informational and educational purposes only.